Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we have come back after our break, but we're here again. Thank you, Father, for the building, as always, the chance to gather and to have the provisions that go with it, Father. Even in those things, we see your hand at work to ensure your word is taught and that we can hear it. Thank you, Father, for that blessing. Thank you, Father, as well, for, for the patience and for the endurance, but mostly, Father, for the dedication that is evident with those who would continue to gather and, and devote themselves to the study of a rich but challenging book and, and a work, Father, that does take uh, diligence and does take commitment. And we thank you, Father, that we have found that commitment and that we have uh, continued to have the opportunity to be here, though we know there are many who would continue if they could. But nonetheless, Father, we are here. And so I uh, pray, Father, that as you have called us here and you have made this opportunity available, then we can be sure you have a purpose in mind and we pray that that purpose would come through tonight in the teaching, that you would ensure that it does, and that the words you gave to Isaiah centuries ago, as they are spoken yet again today, would be new and fresh and, and revealed specifically to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are almost done with the second part of Second Isaiah. So we are in 53 through 56 tonight. There is 57, that is still part of this section, but then that will be the end of that second section. And then 58 through the end of the book is the last section. It's the third piece of 2nd Isaiah. And remember, we identified with each piece a member of the Godhead because the focus within each of these pieces is clearly with one of the three in the Godhead. The earliest section was the Father. We are right now in the middle of that second section, which is all about the Son the suffering servant. When we get up here later, it'll be about the Holy Spirit's work. So those are broad themes. There's so many different themes. I won't recount them all. You've heard them before. But just keeping in mind, this book is, is known for the fact that Isaiah plays with multiple themes and mixes them together as he teaches through the book. But in the course of this section, we're clearly talking about the suffering servant, Christ in his role as the suffering and dying Messiah, and the triumphant resurrected Messiah who will eventually come and reign. That's the big picture. Within this second section, we've seen passages that are sort of set apart from the rest of the text and they have a lyrical nature to them. We've seen three of these so far and I've pointed them out at least maybe occasionally and not in every case maybe. Tonight we're going to see the fourth. I'm pointing it out tonight because this is easily the most important. It's the last and the most important of these servant songs within this second section, the suffering servant section. I'll just list the verses for the other three. The first of these songs, if you will, was Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. That's where we heard of the mission of the Messiah, what his mission was. The second was Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. That was the trials that he will encounter in that mission. The third was Isaiah 50, Four through nine, that's where we saw the suffering of the servant in, in a song or a lyrical form. And then tonight, we begin it right at the end of 52, which we actually covered all of 52 last time, but two verses at the very end of 52 actually form a transition into 53. And then all of 53 is part of this song. It's the fourth one. Let me read you one commentary, one quote out of a commentary regarding this fourth servant passage within Second Isaiah. George Robinson said, the profoundest thoughts in the Old Testament revelation are to be found in this section. 
It is a vindication of the servant, so clear and so true, and wrought out with such a pathos and potency that it holds first place in Messianic prophecy. First place. Also, you remember that we saw in Isaiah 51 an earlier reference to the arm of Jehovah. That was a way of describing who? Who is the right or the arm of Jehovah? Christ. So in 51, Isaiah introduced that term as a way of describing the Messiah. He'll use it again in this passage. So I'm mentioning it so that you're ready for it. When you see it, you know we're talking about Christ. Finally, we've already seen Isaiah proclaim that God's people won't be, they will be redeemed, but they won't be redeemed with money. He mentioned that last time we met and talked. The statement implies there is a redemption coming, of course, but it's going to be done in a different way. And most specifically, it means it can't be bought, it can't be obtained by the work of the individual. It has to come from somewhere else, from God himself. That reference earlier is actually brought to a head in this passage, how this redemption without money is going to take place. I'm going to start just with the end of 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told them they will see and what had not been heard they will understand. The last three verses of 52 form a sort of outline for what he's going to describe in the entirety of 53. Christ will be exalted, he starts with, because at first it's going to seem as though he fails. So the first thought out the gate is, understand, he will succeed. Now, having said that, he goes to the next statement. His appearance will be marred more than any other man. And that's a reference to the beatings and to the flogging and, and all that came with it as he went to the cross. So it's directly set in opposition. Understand first, he will succeed, but also understand that before he succeeds, he will undergo this death process. It helps you understand why the death comes. It makes you sure that you don't see it in the wrong way as a, as a Jew, for example, trying to understand it. Then the third piece, he says, in the end, he will rule over nations. So it's a summary of there, there will be victory, but first there is death. Finally, there's ruling. Now, that's the outline. Let's look at 53, as I promised. By the way, there are 80 references to Isaiah in the New Testament. 80 times a New Testament author or Jesus in the Gospels quotes out of Isaiah. Most of those come out of this one chapter. Reading 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Yet he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb 
that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The very words probably sounded familiar because of the frequency of how often they're quoted. But even the themes should sound familiar. It's almost like the Old Testament version of Romans. This chapter stands in many ways as a mini recitation of what Paul elaborates on in his letter to Rome. For any who would look at the text and suggest that some of the concepts that we have come to understand in New Testament theology, like substitutionary atonement, uh, to suggest that that was a uh, an invention of Paul, some Bible critics come to that conclusion, is to ignore this chapter entirely because clearly substitutionary atonement is on view, in view here. I want you to keep in mind that all of this was written and prepared centuries before Christ's arrival, which ha- has an ironic consequence, by the way. Bible critics have, have often discounted the possibility that this book was actually written by a man... Isaiah, and actually written in the date that we know Isaiah lived. And their reasoning often for saying that that's not possible, that this book could not have been written by Isaiah in his day, is because it is so accurate in foretelling future events. Not just the ones we've seen already, of course, but this one in particular. That he could foretell the death of Messiah by a piercing centuries before anyone ever saw crucifixion take place. The next thing to note, though, in this chapter in 53 is that once again the layering is taking place. There's two layers here, one of which you'll see undoubtedly. You've already seen it. The other one, I wonder if you have. The layers here are near-term fulfillment, far-term fulfillment. The near-term fulfillment is the one that's easy, that being Christ's death and crucifixion. This is a prophecy, remember, as it's being written, Christ has not yet died. So what Isaiah is describing is something that's going to happen in the future. But there are two shades to it. One is near-term, one is far-term. So if I recount down the line here of the text, you'll see it very clearly, right? In verses 1 through 10, principally, you have the near-term fulfillment. So you have the entire near-term fulfillment in the chapter from 1 to 10. The long-term view is at the end of tribulation, at the moment that the Jewish nation comes to believe Christ is their Messiah and turns to him in faith as Zechariah 12 describes, if you remember when we've looked at that chapter multiple times. We'll come to that again in a minute. I'll explain how this is also a prophetic description of that moment. But before we do that, let's make sure we understand the near-term one. The vivid descriptions here of Jesus in human form undergoing a horrible death. First, it describes who He is. The root that comes from a parched ground. Now, what does that tell us? Well, by itself, almost nothing. But it's tied into what he's already taught earlier in the book. The term root coming out of the ground should immediately take your memory back to where we last saw that kind of a passage in this text, which was going all the way back to Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, the Messiah is described there as a root from who? Jesse. Remember? Well, this reference to root again is intended to invoke that again in your mind, to bring you back to that thought again. So he is a root from parched ground, which is another way of saying a root from Jesse. 
We said that he's described as a root of Jesse, not of David, because the intention here is to make clear he's unremarkable. To be a son of David would be to be to be the son of a king. To be the son of Jesse? He's just a farmer, just another guy. And that's intentional. And when you look at the context here, it makes it very clear that's in, that is the intent, that he is just an unremarkable human person in terms of his appearance. It says in the text, he's without a remarkable form or appearance. An ordinary Joe would be the way I would say it. And I think it's so easy as we look back in the text now as faithful Christians to assume, naturally assume, that if we could see Jesus with our eyes now, that he would appear divine. That we would see in his physical appearance a kind of divinity reflected. I mean, that's how he's painted, right? He's painted as a Scandinavian half the time and, and glowing from behind. Instead of the short, not terribly attractive Jewish man that he probably was. And I'm not saying that because I'm imagining in that way. I'm saying that because the text says it that way. Isaiah says, God chose a plain appearance for the man, Christ. And more than plain, the text here says he repelled. He repelled men. Dr. Furkenbaum says it this way. In Israel today, Orthodox Jews have a name for Jesus. They hold him in contempt and they played a game with his name, reflecting their contempt. His true name is Yeshua in Hebrew, as we know. But Orthodox Jews have taken to calling him Yeshu, dropping the A at the end. That doesn't mean anything. It's a made up word. It's made up from the first three Hebrew initials from a line of Hebrew that reads, may his name and memory be blotted out. So they call Jesus Yeshu as a way of echoing that phrase every time they want to mention his name. He's despised today as well by the very people he came for. And that's, in, that's intended. God has said they will not receive him until the day that it's appointed. But that's the extent to which the Orthodox Jews of, of Israel still despise him, even from afar. The question that should be in our minds is, why did God choose a humble appearance in this way? It's not accidental and it's not incidental. It was intentional. He was intentionally made to be if not unattractive, at least not compelling in his appearance, right? One that you could easily overlook and maybe even wonder when you see him, you're really the Messiah, not what I imagined. No, not exactly what I had in mind. Why did God do that? Maybe the short answer is because no flesh will be glorified. We become attracted to him for the wrong reason. And remember, that's always been the pattern. Who else can you think of in Old Testament history that has a similar kind of uh, a pattern, and actually you can see both sides of the pattern, good and bad, in one example particularly, David versus Saul. When the nation of Israel wanted a king, they picked the guy that looked the part. Saul was a great leader, of course, because he's big, tall, and, and impressive. Bad choice, as it turned out. When God said it's time to pick the king, he picked the last one you'd have ever imagined in terms of human appearance. David never could be a good leader. He's a, he's a poor shepherd boy, but a man after God's own heart. So that's that's commonly God's process, to pick the one you wouldn't expect. You know, Peter, the fisherman, or Paul, the guy that's persecuting Christians, becomes the leader in, in, in uh, doctrinal teaching within the church. I mean, these are classically God's ways of working. And why? Because as that happens, you have no choice but to credit God at the work, with the work. God turns that so that you, can't, you cannot make those associations, and the flesh is being crucified and the spiritual is being amplified, God being the one in control of both. So, no doubt Jesus' appearance challenged the faith of all Israel in his day because they didn't see a mighty figure. And that's not uncharacteristic. And you want a current day application just in passing before we move on. 
Just remember, God is all about picking the unlikely man or woman to serve him. So don't judge on appearances or pedigree. Be ready to accept who God sends. Now look at the remaining details briefly. He's despised, forsaken. Verse 3, we understand that. Remember, that doesn't just refer to the fact that he goes to the cross. That was a description of his entire ministry and perhaps even his life before ministry, given that he came from Nazareth. And we all know nothing good comes from Nazareth. He's a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. There's an interesting issue there in the Hebrew, by the way. The Hebrew word for sorrows is literally pains. And the Hebrew for grief, as it's translated in my Bible, is actually literally disease. I think it's actually more accurate to say he was acquainted with pain and disease. It speaks to his humanity. We know he grieved over losses uh, of friends like Lazarus. He probably grieved over the loss of his dad, Joseph, his earthly father at some point, because we don't hear him in the text after his ministry begins. Presumably he would have been there if he'd been alive. We know he grieved in his own death, of course. Then verses 4 through 6, you have that mini version of Romans, as I've said. And then in 7 through 10, you have the death itself being described. But more than the process of death, Isaiah really focuses on the purpose of the death, which is obviously much more important than how. Christ was silent like a sheep, which is exactly predicted by the fact that we know the, the willingness of Messiah to go to death is testified from Isaiah earlier. We know he goes there by his own decision, not because he's made to. It's, his life is taken by oppression and judgment. That's the leadership that conspired against him. His own generation, in verse 8, has no idea what's happening. I found that interesting, right? That means that even in the day, the nation of Israel couldn't understand what was going on. His grave was with criminals. We all know what that means, right? That's referencing the two thieves. But then his death was one of a rich man, and that's because of where he was buried, because he was in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, which was a very wealthy tomb. Verse 9 confirms he was innocent. And then who is it that brings all of this about? The Lord. So finally, in culminating that section, Isaiah makes clear this is all coming about because God intends it. The Lord will bring Christ through it. And then at the end, he says, Christ's obedience will ensure that he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. I think offspring there really references the child of God who comes to faith in Christ. All right, that's the short term. I alluded earlier, there's a long term. The long term prophecy here, the second layer, is with regard to this moment at the end of tribulation when the Jewish nation is in Jerusalem, remember? They're under siege because the Antichrist has come against them in the city and intends to destroy them. We've talked about this. I know you, you're remembering this, I hope. And the last moments of tribulation are the nation of Israel receiving the Holy Spirit's pouring out and it transforms them into men and women of faith. They call out on Christ. We've looked at it where it's been described in Isaiah. We've looked at the words that we think they're saying, which are described in the Psalms at different points. Now here in this chapter, I want you to go back and look in the verses we've already read at some of the language that's being used in those verses. Like, for, for example, in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4. What pronoun tense is being used? What pronoun form is being used? It, it moves from a third person to what? The end of verse 3, verse 4. Surely our griefs. What person is that? First person. All of a sudden, the whole thing goes to first person. Somebody talking. Who's talking? Who are these people? It's the Jews. And which ones specifically come to understand this? The ones in that last moment of tribulation. In other words... We're not saying necessarily that this is a script for what they say, 
I think that's actually more accurately found in the Psalms where we went and looked at those in the past. But at the very least, this is consistent. This is describing what's in their head. This is the thoughts that come to mind. They say, we have been, we, we've put our own Messiah to death and he bore our sins for us. We've come to an understanding of the gospel. Remember in Zechariah 12, 9 through 10, this is where you see that description again. Listen to how consistent the description is of that moment with what they're saying or what's being thought here in Isaiah. Zechariah 12, 9. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they pierce and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So that's the gut-wrenching reaction that the nation of Israel has as they come to the awareness by the spirit and his pouring out that they have had in their history their own people murder their own Messiah. But then they also, apparently, according to Isaiah 53, they've also come to understand why. That many Romans part is in there. They've come to understand it was our iniquities laid on him. He died on our behalf. So they understand it not just in the simple sense, we killed him, but in the meaningful sense, God put him to death for our sake. And they mourn over him. And so that's the second layer of prophecy that's going to be fulfilled out of this text. Looking further, the last two verses of Isaiah 53 bring it to a conclusion. As a result of the anguish of his soul, verse 11, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So it pulls it together. At the end here, Christ is ultimately victorious over death. He receives his reward, divides it with the strong. Who are the strong he's dividing his reward with? Who does Christ share his reward with? Right? Those who he has redeemed, the believers, both New Testament saints and Old Testament saints. So looking back over the entire passage, you can see here both the evidence that it's near-term, the time of Christ's death, and also looking into the distant future, even to the distant future or the future from today, when Christ's return will, re will re uh, uh, result in his receiving of this inheritance and his sharing of it with those he's redeemed. Now, thinking about what we understand will happen in tribulation, what is the result of the Jews in Jerusalem having this awareness and making this cry to Christ? on that last day of tribulation, what do we know the result of that cry out is? He comes back for them. In, consistent with his own statements to them back in the Gospels. I'm thinking of Luke chapter 13 when he tells the nation of Israel, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Meaning, I will not return to you until you recognize me for who I am. Well, that required the Spirit's involvement, of course, so God's really setting the timing for that. And this event precipitates his return. Look at chapter 54 now, because 54 is a continuation from that moment. Beginning with 54, verse 1, you have Isaiah describing what the suffering servant will experience once that cry for him occurs. Verse 1, shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. 
lengthening your cords and strengthening your pegs. For you will be spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who called the God, who called the God of all the earth. Who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger I, have hid, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me. Now that's present tense in the Hebrew. This is. So this moment he's describing. This is like the days of Noah to me. When I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains will be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear. And from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. In some sense, this is the declaration that the nation of Israel will receive following that moment of recognition of Christ and his return for them. Again, I'm not you know, saying that every word here is exactly what they hear in the moment, but another way to look at it is if they still have the book of Isaiah handy, as they come to an understanding of what's going on and they can consult these verses and see them in a new light, once they've read all of 53 and understand what's coming or what has happened, let's say, they have 54 right around the corner so they can see what comes next. It brings the purpose together for them. It's a beautiful song and you can hear it sung by the Lord to Israel in response to their sorrow over the piercing of their own Messiah. Do you understand the true mercy of the Lord that he would prepare these statements for them knowing that at the first moment they understand all that's happened, they'll have this questioning in their mind for how is the Lord going to respond to the people who crucified his own son? And his response to them is, I'm going to bring you into my loving kindness for eternity. I don't want to articulate or exposit the entire chapter because I don't think it's necessary. I think there's a lot there that builds on what we've already taught in this course, and I think it's mostly self-explanatory. Promises of how God will protect them and guide them into the kingdom and that they will all know him and that they will all be his. But verse 17, I think, is worth a moment. The very last one I read. Does it sound familiar? Have you heard it quoted perhaps in other contexts before? No weapon that is formed against you will prosper and such and such. I've heard it in some cases in conjunction with God's promise to the Christian or to the church as a whole that it's sometimes used in that context. Considering how it appears here in Isaiah, in its context, would tell us we have to be careful about applying this passage 
any more broadly than to Israel herself. Proper biblical scholarship requires that we separate interpretation from application. The proper interpretation of this verse is that God is speaking to Israel about what he is prepared to do for Israel alone. But a reasonable application of that biblical truth would be that God makes similar assurances to Gentile believers on the same basis, on the basis of faith. It is not that only the Israelites will be protected and, and comforted and so on. It's simply to point out that he is speaking here to a specific audience with a specific statement. Don't turn it into something it's not, even if that thought can be found elsewhere in Scripture. So this is one of those examples where uh, it's often the case people will pull a Bible verse out of Scripture and say it means such and such, and what they're trying to, to support is a correct thought. It's a correct teaching out of the Bible. But the verse they pick to support it is the wrong verse. That verse doesn't say what they're trying to say, even if what they're trying to say is the right thing. This is a good example of that. Another good example one is uh, somewhere in Second Chronicles where the, the promise is that if my people turn to me and, and confess their sin and I will restore their land and so on. I see that on bumper stickers next to the American flag all the time. Folks, that has nothing to do with us or America, or any other country other than Israel. It's a specific promise to the nation of Israel. Isaiah's next two chapters here are, uh, in total, another beautiful sonnet. Now, the, the structure of these next two chapters is pretty straightforward, and it will go more quickly than you might imagine. Um, they're spoken to both Jews and Gentiles, but the first chapter, chapter 55, is to the Jew, and 56 is to the Gentile. And they're both an invitation to salvation which I love the way God wraps up this second section because he's been addressing what will happen to the Messiah and why. And now at the end, he, he gives you the invitation at the end. He kind of sets up the whole situation and brings you to the bottom line and then he opens this door at the end to say, now, whoever will come shall come. That's a good pastoral message and this is classically what you're seeing here as well. And I think that's so important to understand the biblical concept of salvation is to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, and the Gentiles grafted in. It went out to one audience. Now it's being principally sent to another audience. Ultimately, it comes back to the first audience, but it's being done in that separated way by and large. That doesn't preclude people crossing over. It's just a general way that God has approached the salvation message. So look at 55 first. Reading all the way through 55, remembering we're talking about the Jewish nation. If you're looking for that, you'll notice in the text clues that tell us we're talking about the Jewish nation alone in this chapter. See if you can find them with me. 55.1. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David." Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are my ways your ways my ways declares the Lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than yours 
and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my word, from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led with peace, led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up, and it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. So this is an invitation to Israel to receive their suffering servant. One thought that will come to mind quite often whenever we see an invitation, whether it's in the Bible or whether we hear somebody offering it, knowing God's plan, and you know, Isaiah has been very rich all the way through in describing God's sovereign purpose and plan in how he brought about everything that Isaiah talks about. Never, I mean, just keep in mind Isaiah 6, right? Being told up front, you're going to say these things, but no one's going to listen to you. Knowing all of that, we tend to have this thought in the back of our mind as we see an invitation like this. What's the point? Why make an invitation to a group of people who won't receive it until you prepare them for it? Isn't it going nowhere? That's an understandable thought, but it misses the point. The point is, when God's ready to turn the heart, what is it that they're turning for? It's this. My word will not go out without accomplishing what it's intended to do. We sometimes turn that phrase a little bit based on what we may have seen in various English translations to something more like this. My word will not go out and return to me void. That makes the sense wrong in a, in a way because he's not saying it won't go out and come back to me without doing something. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it will not come back to me until it has accomplished everything it's supposed to do. It's as if his word is separate from him out working. Until it's finished, it doesn't come back. Then we remember who the word is, Christ, and we see that passage in an entirely different way. That he's saying my son will not go out and return without having accomplished everything that I've asked him to do. Remember, what section are we in? The suffering servant section. The word is Christ, according to John 1. I don't mean to say it's not talking about his word in literal form. In other words, the scriptures. I think it has that meaning as well, because the scriptures and Christ are inseparable. But don't see it strictly as his word being proclaimed. Think of it as well in his word incarnate, and his work personally, not ceasing until it is accomplished, all God has intended it will accomplish. So therefore, this call, this invitation is necessary, even though without God's grace, it cannot have its intended effect in the heart. It's still necessary because as grace comes, the message will be there too. Christ is still working through that message and the message is still out there ready to be received when the time comes. So don't divorce the messenger from the message, I guess is the point. So this is an open invitation. I like the way it starts. It has three drinks. Water, milk, and wine. Three drinks. Why those three? They're picturing the receiving of, of new spiritual life. Why three drinks? We know water, right? Water is a common one. We've heard that one before. Water is refreshment. So it's a picture of the refreshing quality of salvation. It, it refreshes us to a new life. What about wine and what about uh, milk? What is wine for? How about enjoyment? Wine is associated with joy. That's the reason why wine was introduced into the Passover meal was for joy. So you have water for refreshment, wine for joy, and milk is the nourishment. So milk being the way we are in babes of Christ, in Christ brought up. So he's offering salvation pictured by these three things. 
It's a reflection of the three benefits we have in our relationship with the Lord. Do you notice, though, he says for all three, you can't get them by buying them. They're not for sale. Purchasing here is is one way of clarifying they cannot come because we go out, look for them, find them and acquire them on our own. These things come to us only by grace, by God's work. Remember Christ's own words in Matthew 11? He echoes this a little in Matthew 11:28 when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not speaking about liquids, but it's in the same sense of what coming to Christ brings us, a refreshing or a different style of life. Then he says, what is this thing you're going to get? It's not by money, so where do you find it instead? He says in verse 3, it comes from this everlasting covenant, which we know is the new covenant, which is uh, assured by the same mercies that were shown to David. This is one of the first signs we're looking at the Jews here. Because, think of it, this statement is to assure you that what God is offering, you can trust in, and his point of argument for why you can trust in this salvation that he's offering for free is he says, by the same mercies I showed David. That's only going to impress a Jew. If you're trying to make an argument for why you can trust that this is a salvation you can depend on, you don't appeal to some covenant that was given to a man who was the king of the Israelites. If you're a Gentile, that's a meaningless statement. And so the first clue that we're looking at a a Jewish audience, the same God, in other words, who assured David concerning his descendants having an eternal throne, that same assurance is going to be proven true with Messiah. And he says, by that same standard, you can be sure that this statement that God is making to us is trustworthy, that we can have this covenant and be sure in it. Verse five gives us another clue that it's Israel. He says, behold, you will call a nation you do not know. What he's talking about here is how in the millennial kingdom, in the time that Christ rules, Israel is now a chief nation on the earth. During that future kingdom time, the temple is, exists again. The new temple exists again in, in Jerusalem. And we know from places like Ezekiel and even in Isaiah that there are the nations of the world, the Gentile nations who have been assembled around Israel, who come now to worship at the temple. They stream, we're told, into Israel. That's what, they were ta- what he's talking about here. He says... A nation you didn't know, meaning a foreign nation, you're calling it. How is Israel calling it? Well, it's the same way in which Israel's God called us, that we are grafted in. Similarly, in the millennial kingdom, the the very fact of Israel's presence on the earth in their temple is a call, a beacon to the nations of the earth to come to them and, and worship at the temple. So that's what he's saying here. You will find this call going out from you, and that call will result, it says, in a nation which knows you not running to you. So that's the picture of that moment. This is all a promise, a part of this invitation. Then going forward from there, he says, before it's too late, call upon the Lord and seek him, repent, turn to him, and he will have compassion. That's basically the gospel message right there. Now let's look at 56. So 55 is that invitation to the Jew based on what he has presented to them already in in this section on the suffering servant. Now he turns to the Gentile. 56.1. Thus says the Lord, Preserve, preserve justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this and the son of the man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, 
to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs unable to bark, dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. Come, they say. Let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink and tomorrow will be like today, only more so. Now you notice the distinct change there in verse 9, right? Holding that section separate, we'll come back and look at that. But until that point, it's an invitation extended to Gentiles in keeping with the promises Isaiah has given already, going all the way back, in fact, to the promises God gave Abraham that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. Here you see Isaiah speaking in detailed form from God's point of view, from his voice, that he intends to carry that out. So in verses 1 through 2, you have that invitation for salvation repeated. Very similar to the language he used to the Jew. But in verse 3, the audience is identified now, and it's obviously done in a new way. This is a different audience. Look at how he describes them. He says, let not the foreigner, so that's the first clue we're talking about somebody outside of Israel, who has joined himself to the Lord. Notice some of the language that's going to come up, not just here, but in several other verses. The sense of a foreigner attaching to something. He joins himself to the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Isn't that interesting? He joined to the Lord, but fears a separation from his people. And then it gets specific. It talks about a second person, a eunuch. First one was a foreigner. Now we have a eunuch. Eunuchs are foreigners to Israel, but they're not the same person in this case. And I'll show you why in a minute. To both the eunuch and to the foreigner who have this concern that they're going to be shut out and kept out from the kingdom that God is offering his people to the Jewish people. God's response is, no, you could have a part. In fact, you'll have a part even better than calling yourself sons and daughters. Why are we better than a son or daughter in that sense? What is the name God has given us? bride to him we have a a position that's even better than son and daughter in the sense that the church has this privileged role as bride of christ but putting that aside for a moment let, let me address one thing that probably caught your ear when he goes to describing this invitation for the foreigner or for the eunuch he uses a way of describing it that may have caused you to puzzle he says to the one who keeps from profaning the sabbath and keeps his hand from doing evil The reason that may have confused you is you understood that to be God's offer, that here's my offer to you. You can have this assurance of joining in, but you have to keep the Sabbath and profane from evil. You would appear to be saying, okay, here's the works-based recipe for entering into my assembly. That's not what he's saying, though it's obviously something that comes to mind as you read the text. 
Understand that in Scripture generally, this is going from, obviously, all the way back from Exodus to certainly into the New Testament and and particularly into the book of Hebrews. The Sabbath for Christian is Christ himself. There was a Sabbath given in Exodus, of course, to the, the nation of Israel, a day of the week that they observed in a specific way. But to those who are in the New Covenant, The Sabbath is no longer one day of the week, but every day of the week. And we keep it by virtue of being in Christ. The Sabbath day itself is a picture of Christ. Because in its day of rest, you have the achievement of what Christ does on the cross. For six days of the week, you work. One day of the week, you got rest from work. But then Sunday, I guess, in the Jewish calendar... You had to go back to work. So the rest of that one day wasn't a permanent rest. It was like a taste of rest, but it never actually put you at rest. That's the law in a general way, right? The, the sacrifices, men stand in the temple day after day, sacrificing you know, all the time. Why? Because those sacrifices did not remit sin. Only when Christ's sacrifice took place did the need for daily sacrifice get put to an end. Similarly, With Christ's work having been finished and him seated at the right hand of the Father, we rest with him. Just as he rested from his works, we now rest from our, quote, work. What work are we resting from in Christ? Any work that attempted to save ourselves. The works which could never have hoped to bring us to righteousness are no longer works. We now rest in his work. So the Sabbath is fulfilled in its fullest form in us when we believe in Christ. Now, we can still take a day out of the week and not do anything. I mean, a lot of people take multiple days of the week and not do anything. That's, that's nothing special. But we're not having to do it because we have met the need for it in Christ. And this is in Scripture. I'm recounting it without giving you the time to go through it all because we don't have time to do that. But in the meantime, knowing that tr- to be true, then when we see him say to somebody, a foreigner, a Gentile, who comes to faith, that faith is itself the achievement of The Sabbath. So when he says to the person who keeps from profaning the Sabbath, how do you keep from profaning the Sabbath today in the church age? You do so by faith in Christ. Ironically, without faith in Christ, you can have a perfectly consistent one day of the week. You do no work and you are not honoring the Sabbath because it's been revealed in Christ and you have rejected him. How do you refrain from doing evil? Without faith? It is impossible to please God. Your efforts at refraining from evil are a consequence of your faith by virtue of sanctification. So what he has said in those two verses is the one who has salvation and the one who is in sanctification, that person is included in this promise. Now, I realize that you don't see that in the text. You have to understand that based on New Testament theology. But that New Testament theology speaks this very clearly. Isaiah talks about two groups of Gentiles who now have this hope to attach themselves to the assembly of Israel. You have this attaching, this grafting in opportunity. The first is the foreigner. The second is the eunuch. Why these two groups? Why these two distinctions? Why name them this way? Well, there was a previous time in Scripture, in Deuteronomy 23, where God goes out of his way in the law to name those same two groups, specifically a certain two groups of foreigners and eunuchs. And here's what he says about them in Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. 
He says, no one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That's what a eunuch is, if you didn't know. Number, then verse 2, so, so that, that group is excluded from the assembly of Israel. Verse 2, no one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Because they did not meet with you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Now, given that that, that's the only where that appears, by the way. So given that that section of scripture associates eunuchs and this other group of uh, illegitimate birth, which he names as Ammonites and Moabites, which you may remember are the descendants of the, the children of Lot and his daughters. They are specifically called out. Based on their association here in Deuteronomy, I think the, the natural conclusion, looking at Isaiah now, is that when Isaiah puts eunuchs and foreigners together, foreigners refers to Ammonites and Moabites. Now, we know from earlier places in Isaiah that Ammonites and Moabites will see an opportunity in the kingdom to be attached. There is an opportunity for them in the, in the future kingdom, but only as a small group. And there was some, if you remember, we looked at the the uh, Oracle of the Nations, when we looked at that, you can go back and, and look at your notes. But they stand as well as representative of all Gentile nations. I'm not limiting it to them, of course. But why does he invoke eunuchs and, and foreigners, the, the general name for Moabites and Ammonites? Why is that in the text? Why not just say Gentiles and be done with it? Because being part of the assembly means specifically worshiping in the temple. So, for example, an Ammonite who came to know the Lord truly could be received as a faithful follower of Yahweh, and he would have been saved, if you think of it in, that, in those terms. But it still would not have allowed that person to enter into the temple and worship at the temple. They would have been barred because of this rule. So would have any of their descendants to ten generations. So they would have had to carry that stigma on. That was the rule of the law in, in, in Deuteronomy 23. Similarly, a eunuch would never be able to go and actually worship in the temple based on this rule. They could get near it, maybe, outside the walls, but they had that limit. They couldn't go any farther. But now, by faith in Christ, what is Isaiah telling the Gentile eunuch or a foreigner who's been previously excluded from the assembly? In verse 7 of Isaiah 56, he says, They will be brought to my holy mountain, and they will be joyful in my house of prayer. We all know from Christ's reference in the Gospels, what is the house of prayer? The temple, right? This is where he gets the line from, right? He says, they, as it is written, my house will be a house of prayer. It comes out of Isaiah 56. What is he promising to these two groups? Entry into the assembly of Israel. Directly opposite of what Deuteronomy 23 is prohibited. Do you remember in Acts chapter 8, when Philip meets the eunuch on the road? Now, remember the circumstances of chapter 8? The Ethiopian eunuch is leaving from where? Jerusalem. What's he said to have been doing there? It says he went up to Jerusalem to worship. Now he's leaving and he's in his chariot. What's he doing? Reading and reading what? Isaiah. And if you go look at what he's reading, it's chapter 53. Now, what is his question to Philip? Who is he speaking of? Himself, the prophet, or of someone else? Right? So what happens after that? Well, then Philip gets up in the chariot and explains... But you have to see as you read the text of Acts 8, it's not just that he explains 53. 
he started there, it says specifically, he started there and explained from there. Where do you eventually go if you're going to talk to a eunuch about what it means to believe in this Messiah? You go to chapter 56. And what does 56 say? 56 says that he will no longer be barred from entering the assembly of Israel. He would have undoubtedly just left Jerusalem faced with that barring and understanding it and yet yearning to get closer. And then what is his response to that message from Philip? You and I would have said, can I be baptized? What does he say instead? What prevents me? That's his nature. That's his thinking. He's been prevented. He's not allowed to go into the temple. So he asks Philip, what prevents me? And Philip says, nothing. And he says, well, I want to get in the water then. That's the joyful response of the eunuch. It's not the salvation message all by itself. That's enough, certainly. But for him personally, it says something more important. It says, I have this disgrace, this barrier has been removed from me, and I am now entering into the assembly of God and attached to Israel, certainly, but yet in, on equal standing, because of what law could not do, grace could. I will finish with the last verses. I said 9 through 12 were a separate section, not going to be hard to explain, but I want you to understand there is a definite division there because the last chapter of this second section, the one we'll look at next week, 57, if you just browse it, you'll see the tone of that chapter totally different than the tone we've been looking at. It's a tone of of rebuke and, and condemnation, and it's directed at the leadership of Israel for having directed their people away from the Messiah in his day and into a rejection of him. And if you know the Gospels, you know that's exactly what the Pharisees did. That's exactly what the nation of Israel was condemned for doing, even by Jesus in that day. You vipe, den of vipers and so on. So Isaiah here is speaking to that group, to the corrupt leadership of Israel and condemning them because as this section finishes, all of this promise, all of what God is prepared to do in the suffering of Christ for the sake of men and their sin was lost for a generation because of the evil of their leadership. That's how, it's, that's how the scriptures comment on it. And this last little section of chapter 56 transitions into that thought. So if you look back at 9 through 12, read it now as God's condemnation against the leadership of Israel. And it suddenly makes great sense. You see it easily. He says they were corrupt. And he describes the nation that will come against them to devour them as a beast. And he's referring there to Rome. First, A.D. 70 and Rome coming against them. Remember, the judgment of Rome coming to destroy the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was the direct result of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. When Jesus sees the nation, the city of Jerusalem and says, oh, how often I wanted to gather you together like chicks and you would not have it. So what does he say to them? I'm leaving your house desolate. That was a declaration of judgment against the city for their rejection of him, and A.D. 70 was when it was fulfilled. This is an allusion to that. So at the end of 56, 56, 9, all you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. That's God beckoning, if you will, the beasts, the Gentile nations, to come and take Israel as prey. And the reasoning is for verses 10 and onward into chapter 57. The watchmen are blind. A watchman is a reference to the leadership. All of them know nothing. They are mute. Unable to bark, dreamers, lying down, greedy, shepherds who have no understanding. They all follow their own way. They want to drink and get drunk. It's just an indictment of the leadership. Going further into 57, you'll see that that theme just continues through that entire chapter. And that's how the suffering servant motif will finish. So let's go in prayer as we finish tonight. Heavenly Father, 
We are awestruck at so often as we go to your word, Father, and uh, no, no less than tonight, Father, when we see in your word such a clear statement of the gospel, such a clear description of all that you were preparing to do centuries later through your son's death, the mercy, the grace that is evident, and the love, Father, that is ever-present in what you were willing to do. We thank you, Father, that as Gentiles we have received this grace, and we are entering into the assembly of Israel, Father, in faith today and in the reality of our presence in a future day. And we so look forward to that day, Father, when we would be in the presence of Christ and we would stand in front of Him as we can and speak words of thanks, Father, and acknowledge His glory and acknowledge, Father, His sacrifice. We thank You, Father, for a small opportunity to understand that tonight. May the study finish, Father, as we plan. May it continue to, to show Your grace and uh, con- confer Your truth. And we pray, Father, you would bring all who you may into this room so that they may enjoy it with us. And bring us back next week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.